Good morning. It's good to see all of you here, and it is good to be back with you here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church, and I am very grateful to be back with you. Before I begin today, I want to I simply add one prayer request, and that is to Ted Williams and to his family. Many of you got the email that went out. Uh, Ted's grandmother, uh, his mother, Miss, Miss Jenny, her mother passed away uh, this past week, and uh, Miss Elsie Harrison was 94 years old. And uh, my family has known Miss Elsie for, I don't know, 25 years probably or more. And uh, for, for that family, I ask for their prayers. Her, her funeral will be this afternoon at Flanagan Funeral Home at 2 p.m. And Ted will have a part of that service. As a matter of fact, he's already left to be able to go and, and prepare for that. But I know he would very much appreciate you praying for him. And uh, also praying for, uh, praying for his family during this time. And um, asking for, for them, for, their, uh, for their, the Lord to give them a special um, message of, of hope during this time. When you love someone, it doesn't really matter how long they lived. It doesn't matter any of that. When you love someone, you're never ready to say goodbye to them. And so I'd ask that you would remember Ted and all of his family in your prayers uh, this afternoon. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, take them out. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, the sixth chapter. John chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I just want to say how good it is to be back with you after having been gone for a couple of weeks um, to, uh, to the Holy Land. I'm very appreciative of Ted and Dave for filling in for me over the last uh, couple of weeks. I'm appreciative to all the church staff who uh, pick up a lot of slack for me all the time, but particularly over the last couple of weeks, they picked up a lot of slack for me, and I am very grateful for them, and you as a church family are very blessed to have the church staff here that you do. Um, many of you probably know the church afforded me an opportunity to take my very first ever trip to the Holy Land. Uh, I left on January the 10th on a Friday and came back on Saturday the 18th. Uh, in the middle of that was a week that was packed with uh, an awful lot of touring the land of Israel. We, we began up in the Sea of Galilee. I think they're going to even put some pictures just to give you a little bit of a, an idea of some of the things that, that I saw there. We, we, in the Sea of Galilee, we went to town, uh, Capernaum that was up there. Uh, Capernaum was where Jesus spent a lot of his time in his Galilean ministry. Uh, we went to the Caesarea Philippi. That's where Peter confessed that Jesus Christ uh, was, that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. We went to the, the area of Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. We also went to Caesarea over on the, the shore. Uh, we went to other places that were a little less popular as far as uh, currently as far as population of people. We went to a little out of the way places. One, one little town was called Tabka. Uh, Tabka was where Jesus performed the miracle of multiplying the loaves and the fishes. And uh, that, was, that was very, very impactful for me. Uh, we visited the site traditionally held to be where Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we traveled to the site where traditionally is understood that John the Baptist baptized Jesus. We visited Gideon Spring. I don't know if you've seen that one yet. Gideon Spring is, is, is where we, we, we learn, according to, uh, to judges, that, that Gideon selected 300 warriors to go into battle with him to fight the Midianites. And uh, that, was, that was quite interesting. Matter of fact, I got down and even tasted that water. And it was good, too, just so you know. Um, went on top of Tel Megiddo. And Tel Megiddo was, gave us a, a wonderful view of the, the Jezreel Valley, which, according to the book, the book of Revelation, is the Valley of Armageddon. 
And we also climbed the Mount of Mount Carmel, uh, where Elijah encountered the 450 prophets of Baal. And you also get another wonderful view of the Jezreel Valley, but from the other side, looking down upon that. And it was interesting because we were, we were there and, and our guide was telling us all about these things. And he says, and, and someone said, well, what is that round mountain in the, in the background over there? It's just like a perfectly round little semicircle mountain in the background. He says, it's the Mount of Transfiguration. And we all stopped. And I had to get three or four selfies of me with the, the Mount of Transfiguration in the background. Later in the week, we moved to Jerusalem and we moved down south, but we went up. And the reason that, the, as we were, I was talking earlier, the reason they always thought they were going up to Jerusalem, even though they were traveling south, is because you're going up in elevation. You're going up to the Mount. And, and so we, we moved there and we went, we went to the Mount of Olives. Uh, you kind of round a corner and you come down this hill and there's... There as you look back over your shoulder and you stop, you're at the top of the Mount of Olives and you just see the city of Jerusalem. Hopefully that, that, that slide will come up and you'll, you'll see that one. Um, the Mount of Olives from there, we descended down into uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And I really can't explain to you how steep of a descent that actually is. It, it, it's, it's very, very, um, I don't know what my word is, but it's, it's steep when you're walking down there. It's the only word I can come up with. It's steep. And you, you know it when you get to the bottom and you get to the Garden of Gethsemane that you have, you've done that. Then from there we went in the old city. We went to the Pool of Bethesda where the, the crippled man from John 5 was healed. We ended up on the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross. We ended up at the garden tomb. And by the way, I went in the tomb. He's not there. It was an amazing thing, though, to be able to experience that. We left from there. We went out outside into the garden tomb area, and we, we celebrated the Lord's Supper together as a group of 27 pastors. And uh, that, was, that was pretty amazing uh, to be able to do that. Um, from, later, we went to Bethlehem uh, to the church where they traditionally uh, believed Jesus to have been born. We went to the Western Wall. We went to the Temple Mount, to the city of David, and, and we, were, we were sitting right next. We were listening to, to our guide talk, and, and, and sort of like a, sort of a last-minute thing that he threw in is as he pointed to the wall that was behind him, about as far as from here to that wall, he said, and, and these are the walls that, that Nehemiah rebuilt. And what, what did you say? The, these are the walls. I said, you should have led with that. That should have been the first thing that you told us when we sat here because then we just all sat there and just stared. These are the walls that Nehemiah rebuilt. It, it's hard to put into to words what it's like to actually visually see things that you've only read about all your life and then now you're, 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 you're looking at them and you're beholding them. And From there we went uh, later, we, we, we toured down in the Judean um, wilderness and, and we saw the city of Jericho. Um, we went to Masada. We went to the Qumran, where the Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Um, probably one of the more impactful things for me was standing outside, back up in, on, on Mount Zion, standing outside Caiaphas' house, where, where Jesus was tried. And we were standing out there. Now there's a church built on that site, on the ruins of what would have been Caiaphas' palace. But the very first sermon that I ever preached was over 25 years ago, almost 26 years ago now. And the very first sermon that I ever preached came from Luke. And it was about Peter denying the Lord three times. And here I was on the very grounds where that took place. And it was, it was, it was, it was, in, and, and, and then I don't think I even put a picture of this up there. But there's on the top of that church is, is a cross. 
And then on top of the cross is a chicken. But it's there to remind that it was, it was the rooster that crowed. And so I was standing there thinking the very first sermon I ever preached occurred right here. I just wanted to tell you all of that just to give you a little bit of insight because to say that this trip was amazing for me would be an understatement. Um, It was truly impactful because um, I was able to see all these places that I had only only read about. I was able to do it alongside other uh, preachers of the gospel who, like me, had never been before. And we're all just amazed. And you can imagine the number of tears that we shed and the number of of times where we just looked at one another in disbelief that we couldn't believe that we were there. And I want to say thank you to you as a church family for supporting me, for allowing me to go um, on this trip. It was truly one of the greatest blessings that I've had in my ministry. And, And I'm truly grateful for the honor and for the privilege to be allowed to go. And I thank you for it from the bottom of my heart. You know, a number of folks have asked me, what was the most impactful thing and, and, and the place that you visited? And it would be very difficult for me to, to probably quantify that or even qualify it in any way. But the spot that keeps coming back to my mind is the place where Jesus fed the 5,000. And that was not a flashy place. It was an out-of-the-way place. I mean, that's exactly what the Scripture said. It's still an out-of-the-way place even today, even though they have, uh, the, there's a Catholic church there of the Benedictine order that, that is the Church of the Multiplication. And it's there in Tabka, in, in the northern part of, of Galilee. But, but when, when this took place, I just went outside and I looked up on those, those mountains. Beverly and I were talking about this last night. I was looking up on those hills. And I'm just trying to imagine. There was 5,000 men. But including women and children, there could have been 15, 20,000. And I'm trying to imagine in this very deserted, out-of-the-way place on these hillsides where there's little green pockets of grass, how they could have set 50s and 100s all across those hills because that's how they did it. When they, and, and, and these people were there. And, and according to what we learn in John chapter 6, all these folks had come because it was a time of Passover. We also know that John the Baptist had been beheaded and, and so there was a lot of followers of him that were now just converging upon Jesus and they believed that Jesus was a miracle worker and they were looking for someone that they could follow and somebody that, that, that could help them during their, their misery. They'd also heard that he could do miraculous things so they were converging around him hoping that he would heal them and lay his hands upon them and bring them healing. And they were chasing Jesus and they chased him down to this spot and, and they were seeking Jesus for what he could do for them. They were all looking for what he could provide them. They were not following him because they believed him to be the son of God. Yet, in his account of what occurred, Mark tells us that Jesus had compassion on this multitude of people anyways. He had compassion upon them because, he says, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. Now, I don't know how that affects you, but it affects me in this way. I am so grateful that Jesus still has compassion on people who seek him for the wrong reasons. I hope you are grateful that Jesus demonstrates compassion on you when you seek him for the wrong reasons. Of course, we know the rest of the story. Daylight wanes, nightfall approaches, and disciples get worried about the multitude because they don't have food. They don't have money to buy. They, it, it didn't matter if they had money. There was no place to go buy the food. And here they've got 20,000 people, and they're all going to get hungry, and they're concerned about the, the crowd and what's going to take place. 
And here's where we come to realize that the disciples became more focused on their problem than they were on the limitless power of the Savior who provided for them. I mentioned to our Bible study that gathered on Wednesday night, I mentioned to them how I try not to be too critical of the disciples a lot of times. Early in my ministry, it was really, it was really fun to kind of throw rocks at the disciples for all the things that they did until I got a little older. And the older I got, the more I realized how much like the disciples that I am. You see, I'm just like them a lot of times. Trouble comes, scenario hits, circumstances come my way, and my focus and my attention goes to the problem. My anxiety kicks in. Fear washes over me. I keep trying to figure out how I'm going to fix the problem that I've got, and this thing is so big, I don't know what I'm going to do, how I'm going to do it. And all the while, Jesus is there, just waiting, waiting for me to remember that he is my provider, that he is my sustainer. He's the one in whom my hope is supposed to be placed. Well, as the gospel writers continue to tell us, Jesus eventually takes a young boy's loaves of bread and two fish, and he begins feeding the large multitude, and he gives thanks, and he begins breaking the bread and serving the fish, and breaking the bread and serving the fish, and he keeps breaking the bread and serving the fish, and minutes go into probably hours. He's still breaking the bread and serving the fish. And he never ran out of the opportunity to break bread and serve fish until the Bible says all of those thousands of people were fed until they were fully satisfied and they had more left over than they could even all eat. And then the scriptures tell us that they went by and picked up the leftovers. The leftovers filled up 12 basketfuls. Jesus is just multiplying the bread. And the fish. And of course, the people are astounded. And they just press in upon Jesus even more. They've already come after him for healing. And now, now he is one who can provide them with food. And they continue to press in on him even more. And according to John 56 verse 15, Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and to make him king. And so he departs to the mountain to be alone. And his disciples get in the boat and they go over to Capernaum. And as they, they row out to the middle of the lake, the Bible says that they were caught up in a tempest. A storm came in and began to whip its way around on that lake. John tells us suddenly in verses 19 through 20 that Jesus saw them and he walked upon the sea. And he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So if you want to know the place that impacted me the most, I think we've got a video um, there. Two Sundays ago, that's where I was, was on the Sea of God. And I'm looking back toward the shoreline and toward those hills where all those people would have been. And I'm imagining, as I'm out there on that boat, the storm comes around. And I'm imagining all the things that I've just told you, how my life gets so wrapped up in my circumstances and all this and everything, and I'm out there on this boat, and I can just imagine somewhere, Right around that area was where Jesus walked on the water to his disciples. And I'm just going to be honest with you, that, that's probably the most impactful thing that happened to me on that trip. It wasn't the, flat, it wasn't the, the big tourist place. It was, it was right there recognizing that Jesus comes to us right in the middle of some of the greatest storms that we face. He walks up to us and he says, It's I. Do not be afraid. Um, and that gets us where I want us to be in our text this morning. Um, 
because I want to pick up right after that takes place. In John chapter 6, verse 22, begin reading with me there. On the following day, that's on the day after Jesus fed the 5,000, that was on the day after he had walked on the water. When the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that the one which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they had ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them. Notice he doesn't even give them an answer. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. And then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have brought us to this place to be able to open your word and to hear from you. Now we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and that you would open our blinded eyes to be able to see you, uh, that you would melt the stoniness of our hearts to be able to receive you and that you would truly speak to us, and that we would hear you, and that it would impact us in such a way that we are brought closer to you to understand who you are and what the absolute necessity that we have of needing you. Nothing else but you. This is my prayer. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So the multitude from the day before now presses in on Jesus. They figured out where he's at. They've gone to meet him. And when they get there, they swarm around Jesus just as they had done the day before. Obviously, the day before, they were looking for a miracle of, 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 of being healed, but then they were fed, and so now they're coming with, with double kinds of thoughts. They want to be near him, and, and it alerts us to the reality of the same thing that we've already noted, and that is that these crowds weren't seeking Jesus because they believed him to be the Messiah. They were seeking Jesus because he, they, they weren't going after him because they thought he was going to provide them with eternal life and salvation. Rather, they simply saw him as a miracle worker who could give them what they wanted. In, in some cases, it had been healing, as we said, from injury or disease. But in most all cases, they were looking for someone that could feed their bellies. And this sets the stage for what Jesus would make ultimately seven I am statements in the book of John. 
And as we read here in verse 35, he makes this statement, the first one. He says, I am the bread of life. And so this morning, I just want to briefly examine what does that mean? And, and what, what is the emphasis of that metaphor? And, and what kind of impact would it have had on those, those first disciples and those first crowd that had gathered around Jesus? And what impact should it make upon us? And so the first thing that I want you to know, based upon what the scripture says, is that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And as such, he is whole food. He's not junk food. He is whole food. He's not junk food. Verses 26 and 27, Jesus reveals that he knows why the people are crowding around him. He says, look, the only reason you're here is because I fed your hungry bellies yesterday and you're just back here wanting me to do it again. They looked at Jesus as nothing more than a meal ticket. Yesterday they was hungry. Jesus fed them. Now today they're hungry again. And that's kind of the cycle of life, right? I mean, I ate yesterday. I intend on eating today. And I'm pretty sure tomorrow I plan on eating again. That's sort of what happens. You, 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 you get hungry, you eat, then you live, and the next thing you know, you're hungry again. And so you go back and you eat again, and then you live, and then you go back and you get hungry again. And so the cycle just continues over and over again. But what happens sometimes is in the process of, of deciding that you need to eat is that you, you, you kind of get in a hurry. You don't have the opportunity to fix the food that you really need, so you so sometimes we're, we're prone to grab something quick, right? We, we grab a, a snack, something to tide us over until the next meal comes along. I love Snickers. I've made no bones about it. I love Snickers. I don't need you to bring me any more Snickers, though. But listen, you remember what Snickers, what the, what the slogan was for Snickers? Snickers satisfies you. Here's the thing. It actually does. Snickers will satisfy you because if you take chocolate and peanut butter or excuse me, and peanuts and, and caramel and you mix all that together, you know what it'll do? It'll provide you with an instant energy bump because it produces dopamine inside your system and your system needs dopamine to give you energy. Here's the problem. The more you eat Snickers to give you the supply of energy, the less that your own body will produce that energy for you. Consequently, the more you eat Snickers, the less the Snickers will be able to satisfy you. You eat more Snickers... Less satisfaction occurs. The more Snickers, the less satisfaction. It's, it's, it's the law of diminishing returns. And it happens with junk food. Junk food promises a lot on the front end. And it even can give you a big boost. But the more that you rely on it, which is a false source of energy, the more that you will end up not being able to really benefit from the energy it provides. And then you will have all of the other things that go along with eating too many Snickers. Should I give you an explanation as to what that looks like? Here's the point. That's what junk food does. It promises a lot, but fails to deliver the true satisfaction that our bodies actually crave. And for this crowd, that's exactly what Jesus wants them to know. They were... They, the food from yesterday was gone. They're hungry again. They're coming back to Jesus for more food. And that's why he tells them in verse 27, look, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because the Father has set his seal on him. In other words, Jesus tells them, you have your sights set too low. You're simply looking for something to satisfy your physical hunger you don't understand the miracle that I just performed for you yesterday of the loaves and the fishes. I didn't come to simply feed you physical food. I came to feed you spiritual food that will satisfy you forever. If you'll recall, that's really the same message that he gave 
the woman at the well in Samaria back in John chapter 4. He encountered this woman there and he described himself as living water. And then Jesus tells her in John 14 verse 13, whoever drinks of this well water that you've come to draw from, they'll get thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You see, unlike, unlike the manna that their forefathers had ate in the desert, unlike the bread which they had eaten the day before, which only lasted for 24 hours, unlike a Snickers bar that, that promises a lot but can't fulfill you, Jesus says, I am the food which endures to everlasting life. I am the bread of life. And I want you to know such a statement confronts not only that multitude that was surrounding Jesus that day, it confronts you and me as well. And it forces us to ask ourselves, what am I hungry for? Let me ask you, what are you hungry for? Maybe I should ask, who are you hungry for? Listen, you can try to fill your life with work and you can hope that achievement and success will help settle that inner restlessness inside of you, that inner gnawing that, that eats at you all the time that won't go away. But I want you to know the harder you work, the hungrier you're going to get. Maybe you prefer to go the other route. Maybe you like the route of recreation. If so, you'll eventually come to realize that there's no amount of recreational therapy be it sports, be it vacations, none of that will ultimately fill the void in your life. You will always be left hungering for more. You'll also find that it doesn't matter how many friends or how many relationships that you've got. The spiritual hole that is in your soul that you hope will be satisfied with a new relationship with someone else, that nagging will come back. And it will always be there because it longs to be filled with something that is real and something that is permanent. That is why C.S. Lewis made this, this statement. He said, if you try to satiate, he didn't say it this way, but he said, if there is a hunger inside of you, it is there to be filled with something. And it is not to be filled with junk food. It's there to be filled with something that's not of this world. We need to be hungry but we need to fill ourselves with food which endures to everlasting life. And only Jesus can do that. And he does that by, by giving us everything we need. He is not our divine ATM machine that we just go and tell him everything we want and expect him to fill us up. No, he is the bread of life. He fills us through him. He's whole food. He's not junk food. The next thing that we need to understand is this. As the bread of life, well, he is for beggars. He's not for buyers. The bread of life is for beggars, not buyers. The first question that the people in that crowd ask, what must we do to get this bread? Jesus says, I'm going to tell you what you do. You believe in the one that was sent from God. And I can just imagine the crowd going, wait a minute, believing's not doing. Believing's not earning. That's not work. That's not something that, that someone does to earn food. And this is where we come face to face with the reality of the fact that this is who we are. We are desperate people. We are desperate people to be filled because we have a deep hunger inside of us that gnaws at us. And the only thing that will fulfill that gnawing is the bread of life. And what makes matters worse for us, though, is that we want to figure out how we can fix things ourselves. 
and how we can satisfy ourselves with doing things our own way. And Jesus says, you can't. He says, if you want food that endures, here's how you get it. You get it by believing in me. That's it. You can't do anything to get it. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. Listen, the gospel is not about what you can do for God. The gospel is about what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. And we're hungry for something. Jesus says that the only thing that will fill us is him. And we will not get it by trying to buy him off or earn his favor. We get it simply by coming to him by faith. So, His food is only for the broken. It's only for the desperate. It's only for the beggars. And that leads me to the last point that I want you to see. The bread of life, as the bread of life, Jesus is to be a steady diet, not a one-time meal. He's to be a steady diet, not a one-time meal. Verses 32 and 30 through 35, Jesus makes two key claims. I just want to give them to you briefly. In the first claim, he says that he is from heaven. He is, he is the bread that God sent down from heaven. In other words, If he's saying that, he's saying, I am God and I am eternal. And this did not go unnoticed. In fact, if you go down to verse 41 and read following, this was a turning point in Jesus' ministry because many in this crowd began to realize that he was equating himself with God and his eternality, and they turned against him as a result of it. But what we need to understand is that this claim was he came from heaven. He is eternal. But then the second claim comes in verses 34 and 35 because the crowd still didn't quite get it. They said, Lord, we want this kind of bread that you give to the world, and, and we want this bread forever. And Jesus doesn't disregard what they ask for. He just simply says this. He says, whoever comes to me will never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And so in the first claim, he is claiming to be eternal. In the second claim, he is claiming to have a limitless supply of bread to give to any and all who would come to him. You see, as the bread of life, Jesus is eternal and he is also limitless. And that alerts us to something very important. You see, Jesus is not something to just be snacked on. He is is not just the occasional meal. The bread of life is exactly that. It's life. And feasting on him is what sustains us. Not long ago, Caroline and I were able to go out to dinner. We went to this fancy restaurant where you kind of have to mind your manners a little bit. That was tough for me because I don't have a lot that I didn't know exactly how to behave. Menu was very nice. It was written and, you know, I was glad that some of it was English so I could actually see what it was I was ordering, but I still wasn't real sure what it was. It was a fancy place and she loves, you know, we, she, we, we loved going there and it was wonderful. It was nice to have someone take care of you and do all these things and, and uh, it, it was fun and we had a great meal and when we, when we got done, we walked out, you know, we were holding hands going back to the car and I thought, yeah, this is a really good place. She goes, yeah, we ought to come back here, you know, occasionally and do that because, I mean, affordability would only allow us to go back occasionally. And we thought, yeah, this would be really cool to come back here and eat again sometime soon. You know, it's been my experience in ministry that many people treat Jesus the same way. They will show up at church to worship with God's people occasionally. Sometimes they'll come to the Lord when they have a special need that comes up unexpectedly in their life. And the experience they have is wonderful. They enjoy being with God's people. They enjoy worshiping. 
Or, or the other side, Jesus meets the need that they come asking for the Lord to meet. And they leave thinking, you know, it's great to have been there and to be with God's people. You know, this Jesus thing is cool. We need to add him back into our lives occasionally. I want you to know Jesus is not like some cool upscale restaurant that you go to occasionally to enjoy the ambiance. That's the point that he was making to this crowd. You see, just as we would starve to death physically if we never ate any food, we will also starve to death spiritually if we do not consistently and regularly feast upon a steady diet of the bread of life. And I want you to know Jesus isn't some kind of quick fix. He isn't something that you just try in order to get results. Jesus is a person whom you encounter. Jesus is, he, he is someone that, to whom you surrender your life. Jesus doesn't offer us a, a temporary high that's supposed to offset the low in our life. He's not there just to fill in the cracks and the gaps. Jesus must be our steady diet because he offers us a lifetime of nourishment through a relationship with him. And it's that is what sustains us and helps us grow into the disciples that he wants us to be. And all of that then leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. As the bread of life, Jesus is the eternal and limitless supply of whole food for beggars like you and me. That's who he is. Now, I don't want you to know if that's true, we have to understand what that means. You see, it means that we've got to stop living for the here and now. Too often we're focused on the present. We're focused on running here, running there working for the weekend so that when the weekend comes, we're busy doing everything we do, and the next thing we know is Monday, and we're back going again. But listen, if, if Jesus is truly the bread of life, then we have to stop focusing on satisfying ourselves in the present and begin focusing on the only thing that will matter in eternity, and that is our relationship with him. And furthermore, what it means is that we've got to reevaluate our priorities and we got to reevaluate the things that we're pursuing. You see, if it's true that we don't possess the right kind of currency to be able to buy the bread that Jesus offers, then, then the fact of the matter is we're hopeless. Regardless of how much is in our bank accounts, regardless of how many fine steak dinners that we can treat ourselves to, when it comes to feasting on the bread of life, all of us are beggars. There is not one of us that has the ability to earn anything from him. And so we come to him with empty pockets. And our only hope is that he will fill us by his grace and by his mercy. And listen, if that's true, as I said before, then we've got to stop using Jesus to simply fill in the gaps of our lives. While it is true that the scriptures call upon us to seek the Lord while he may be found and to call upon him while he is near, that does not mean, it does not insinuate that we are only to engage him occasionally. Rather, we must feast upon the bread of life regularly, constantly, because he is our eternal, limitless supply of strength and help and comfort. And so let me ask you once more this morning, what are you hungering for? Who? Who are you hungering for? I want you to know Jesus. Jesus is the only one who will satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. 
and he is the bread of life. He is the eternal, the limitless supply of whole food for beggars like you and me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for loving us like you do. We thank you that you meet every need that we have through Jesus Christ. I thank you for reminding us of that from your holy word. And Father, I pray that there's especially one here this morning who has that deep longing and that hungering in their soul, and yet they have never come to know you as the source that can satisfy them, that by your Holy Spirit today you would draw them and you would open their eyes and they would be able to see Jesus for who he truly is, the only hope that they have, and that they would come to him seeking that salvation that he provides. There are doubtless others of us in this room that we've been there and we, have, we truly understand Jesus to be the bread of life, and yet if we're honest... We have sought after our source of hope and, and the, the satisfaction of our lives through other things. And, and we've come up empty so many times. My prayer is that today you would remind us through your word that the, the one who we came to for our salvation is the same one that we need to continue to feast off of regularly every day of our lives. I pray that you would do this so that your glory might be made known in our lives and so that as we live and as we, as we continue to walk in among the, the people that you give us the encounters with in this world, that we would be an active testimony of your great love for us. I thank you for, for this blessing of being here with this, this people and for this church. And I pray that you would continue to bless us as we leave this place today. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.